Please turn with me in your Bibles again to the book of 2 Corinthians. Today we'll be looking at a passage that starts toward the end of chapter 1 and verse 23. 123, and it'll go through the first four verses of chapter 2. In our passage this morning, we get to see something very special. The heart of the Apostle Paul, as he continues to defend his ministry amongst the Corinthians, He explains his pastoral motivation. This is not a sanitized version of events of his thinking. Instead, we see here an honest account of Paul explaining himself and his actions. And because of the way he communicates and the issues that he's having to deal with we get a really refreshing view of the growth process that God takes his children through. It's neither automatic nor guaranteed to be smooth. Instead, growth in Christ reflects a combination of many factors. As God works through his indwelling spirit and his word and his church to change us, from the inside out, as we learn to simply trust him. He uses absolutely every circumstance to build in us more and more of a reflection of his own character. Did we all just hear that? He uses every circumstance. He uses every period of our lives. He uses everything that we pray to get rid of. He uses everything that we want to end. He uses every circumstance to accomplish this in his people. And as we wonder whether we'll ever be consistent in our walk with the Lord, he encourages us in ways that sometimes or many times we are completely even unaware of. For these Corinthians who had been brought to the Lord mainly through the ministry of Christ's apostle, Paul, their growth and problems proved to be very valuable pictures to us of how God is faithful. Can I ask a question? Isn't that what we want to know right now? Yes, we can admit that. It's hard, but we want to know how God is faithful. And we not only get that picture, but we also see revealed here how we are still so prone to give our affections to the things of this world and be ready or be easily swayed by the thinking of this world. And that's what we really need to be aware of now in the times in which we live. We cannot just relegate these passages or this letter to the problems of the first century. Most everything about them pictures the main reason Christ 
has to come, had to come and save us. And just in our passage today, in chapter 1, verse 23, through the fourth verse of chapter 2, we see both Paul's anguish in ministering to them and the abundant love that he has for them, all going on at the same time. We see their need to be painfully confronted with their abiding sin. And at the same time, Paul's commitment to serving and ministering to them. Now, if we think about that for a second, we should realize that this is not just talking about pastors and elders. This is talking about every person in the church because we are called to minister to one another in some form or fashion. In other words, we can ask this. Was it worth it for Paul and the Corinthians to go through such a, we could call this a symbiotic spiritual growing process with a lot of pain? Was it worth it? And we need to be willing to ask that question too. Paul's hardest and most anguishing afflictions did not come from the outside world's torments upon him, which were many and probably more than most of us and much many more Christians combined. He went through tremendous outside persecution, persecution coming from those outside the church. But his hardest and most anguishing afflictions, we're going to find out throughout this letter, and we've already seen it a little bit, come from inside. Christians who were resistant to growing up. Yet the tone of this letter, especially all the way through, is the incredible love that Paul has for these people because of the love Christ has demonstrated for him. So we get to see, like I said, something really special. We get to see the real and genuine love that God is working to build in us. By that I mean that God's definition of love is so different from our world's definition of love. Now we say this all the time, but let's see if we really mean it today. Genuine love involves a determination to seek the good of another person. Which, by the way, is not even necessary according to the world's definition. The world's definition of love usually points to sentimentality or sex, which doesn't involve a determination to seek the good of another person. It seeks self-glory, self-fulfillment, quote-unquote. And as God has revealed his love in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, something incredibly important comes through. God's love is balanced by the teaching about God's holiness. The great statement that we see several places in 1 John, for example, God is love, is preceded by the equally great affirmation of God's holiness that we see in the first chapter. God is light 
and in him is no darkness at all. That is a description of holiness. 1 John 1, 5. So we cannot separate the love of God from God's holiness without wrongfully denigrating God's own character. In the Old Testament, as we see, for example, in Amos 3.2, God says this to the people of Israel. Are you ready? This is pretty incredible. You only have I known or chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. What do you see there? Both. The therefore in that verse is the bridge connecting God's loving choice in the first half of the verse with the punitive holiness of the second half. Now, of course, Paul understands this, and we must too, if we're going to understand this letter. But we need to understand this if we're going to understand life. And this is drastically different from what our world is telling us. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, a verse probably every person in here knows, that for those who love God, all things in our lives work together for good. How many people misunderstand what the good is that God works? How would the world describe the good that they want God to work? Well, it's quite different from what God means. It's defined in the very next verse where Paul writes to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the the good that God wants to work in you and in me. So our highest good is being conformed to the image of Christ, not happiness. Our highest good is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Every parent in here, your prayer should be for your children that God would conform them to the image of Christ. So to understand Paul's motivation in ministry in this passage today, and really the whole letter, we must understand this first. If real Christian love is concerned about being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, then it will not pander to every whim of those you love and serve. For this can serve instead to actually ruin that person's character. If we are never told our faults, we are very unlikely to seek God's grace in putting them right. Now, I hope we're ready to look at our passage. If you're able, please stand as I read 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23 through the second chapter, verse 4. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But I call God to witness against me. 
It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So here in verse 23, Paul says, But I call to God, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Now, this first part. Paul calls God as his witness against his life, which means something like this, very close to this, or it does mean this, that if he is lying about his ministry defense here, that God should just kill him, take him. What does this tell the Corinthians? That not only is he sincere, but he deeply desired to make that this very clear what his motives were behind the decisions that some people were so upset about. And what was his main motive or reason for not coming? In the last part of verse 23, it was to spare you that I refrain from coming again. To Corinth. In other words, his change of travel plans, as we read in verses 15 through 17, was strictly for pastoral reasons. The change of mind not to come to see them yet was not made for personal expediency, but because of his love for them pastorally. This is really hard to catch if you're zipping through this letter on I've got to read the Bible in one year and you're 20 chapters behind. You know how that goes? Just check it off. You've got to think about this for a bit to get it. The change not to come see them was made as he considered what would be the best for these people that God had called him to minister to. Now, he'll explain more of what he means by wanting to spare them in a moment. Their severe criticism of him for this, however, evidently really hurt him. And you can see that in the tone and the way he writes this. So, as we consider what Paul meant by to spare you, what was he sparing them from? 
This sounds like he may have severely punished or overly pained them. But that's why he goes on in verse 24 to explain that he was not some kind of tyrannical leader. It sounds like using the phrase lording it over them was an actual Corinthian charge. Again, he's using terms that he's already heard coming from them towards him. It sounds like using that phrase, lording it over him, was an actual Corinthian charge that he was intimidating and domineering in matters of faith and conduct. So in explaining why he didn't come to Corinth, when he thought he would at first, also gave him the opportunity to straighten out something that was really much more important, which is what he's getting to here. In verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now, you know what the key words are there? Over and with. Now we see Paul's great description of what genuine biblical leadership should be. As Paul proceeds, he's trying to give them a biblical picture and then show how that's what he was doing. The contrast he draws is what? It's between leadership that lords it over your faith or works with you for your joy. Paul's ministry to all the churches he founded or worked with was one that sought the congregation's cooperation and blessing. All of Paul's letters display pastoral motives and goals, never personal agendas. And biblical leadership always seeks, and that's a really important word, all biblical leadership seeks the voluntary response of God's people, not an imposition of a person's will that enslaves them to someone's personal agendas. Now we could say, well, that sounds like a cult, but folks... It's not just a cult. This happens in so many pastoral situations, in so many churches and Christian organizations. And there is nothing more painful than that. Does pastoral leadership rest on biblical authority then? Well, of course. But outright authoritarianism and brainwashing has no place whatsoever. Genuine godly leadership seeks the free cooperation of those who have been set free to serve the Lord. And as we continue, we'll see even more how the Lord uses the foundation of apostolic authority through his word to lead his bride, the church. Will there be confrontation of sin and discipline in the church? Yes, there will. 
And this was probably exactly what Paul had to do on his painful visit and also in his painful letter. To seek voluntary responses of obedience to the Lord does not mean the freewheeling condoning of sin that strains the reputation, that stains the reputation of Christ. Evidently, some of the Corinthians didn't like their sin exposed by this apostle, so they voiced their objections. By the way, that's a basic human trait. Nobody looks forward to having their sin exposed. But a Christian has a special motivation to do just that. We've already seen Paul having to address several examples of this very problem. And there's more now in this letter. But even in addressing it in this letter, his love for these people includes the constant appeal to align with scripture and apostolic teaching. In fact, we just saw, as we just saw in the last part of verse 23, Paul actually spared them another painful visit for their good. Not to let them off the hook of their disobedience. Then why did he do it? To let them have the time to either feel the consequences of their resistance or to come back to their senses. There are times when we can't solve everything immediately. Every parent knows that. Every leader knows that. But putting it into practice and depending on God at the same time is another whole ballgame. There are times when you let someone alone after they have resisted and after they have resisted and they're totally resistant. And the only way God will work to get their attention is by letting them face so many tough things that they finally are broken in that sense spiritually and will look to him and come and look for you to explain it. And again, look how verse 23 ends. But we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. That's verse 24, isn't it? Sorry. When they cooperate with God's work in them by simply trusting him, they stand firm with joy. And that's what Paul sees and hopes for these people. He hopes that as he shepherds them, and he shepherds them as he hopes. Only God the Holy Spirit can make us holy, but he does work through us. And remember, God redeemed us. Christ died to save us. The Holy Spirit came to indwell us so that we might be holy and so bring glory to him. The bottom line is, that's what we signed up for. There's no renegotiating of this contract. 
It's what we signed up for. The sanctifying process continues our whole lives. And this joy that Paul talks of is not a shallow come and go kind of joy. But the deep inside of you joy that flows out of the peace that only God can give a person who is right with him and knows his love and the grace in Christ Jesus the Savior. So Paul's love for these people is genuine because he is obviously determined to seek the good of these Corinthians. And their highest good is what? Being conformed to the image of Christ. Sometimes you can have peace, quote unquote, in a church just because everybody has agreed not to pay attention to certain things that are obviously sin. And they can do that collectively as a group and completely write off God's holiness and his instructions. That's not what this is talking about, is it? Being conformed to the image of Christ does not allow that kind of neglect of God's word. Now notice in chapter 2 that Paul starts by talking about using his mind to make a decision to pursue a course of action. And we go, well, of course. Let's get real here. How many times do we not use our minds because we just feel like we should do this? Or everybody else is doing this? There are a million reasons why we don't use our minds in this process. Now, he says that he's using his mind to make a decision to pursue a course of action, the particular course of action here that so many objected to. But that was exactly what God had called him to do, to seek the good of these Corinthians by working and praying for their highest good and therefore help them do what? Come to desire on their own to be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 1, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. And this lets us know, in case we tend to dismiss our personal responsibility to make decisions, just how important our minds are in the Christian life. Yes, the Holy Spirit may sometimes give us an inward impression about the way we should go. But it's most important to spend time in God's presence, thinking through the issues as we ponder and meditate on God's word, praying through it all. And the word of God is where we are truthfully informed about who God is and what he is like and what his purposes are. And it is so easy to get off track and think that something is right or something can be looked over or something, something, when we are not regularly 
in God's Word. If you want to know what God thinks or wants you to do, then don't gripe about it and shout about it. Spend time with Him. We need to think God's thoughts as we read and see them in scriptures instead of acting out of being anxious to just do something because we're uncomfortable or feel a certain way. Remember that Paul spent a year and a half with the Corinthians on his first visit when he founded this church on his second missionary journey. The painful visit, his second visit to them, took place later when Paul was in Ephesus for about three years on his third missionary journey. And he'd received several reports of all these problematic issues in the Corinthian church. How did that affect him? It broke his heart. He was full of anguish, and yet he knew at some point, that he had to confront those things or those people. So he most likely made that quick out-and-back trip to Corinth from Ephesus, referred to in verse 1. And then he wrote the painful letter referred to here in verses 3 and 4, which we don't have. Now, I know that all of us would love to have it so we could examine it and write a book about how to make a painful visit. But that, in God's wisdom, was not what he chose to put in his word. And I'm thinking, thank goodness, because us having to work that out from other resources in the word is quite a process that he'll take us through, not just academically, but also in our own lives to learn how we should approach these kind of issues. The main approach is on your knees before the Lord as we do it. So 2 Corinthians most likely was written just a little later from Macedonia, before Paul got to Corinth on his third visit, which was about three months. What we realize as we put all this together is that Paul's firmness in dealing with the Corinthians was evident in his letters and his visits. Now, why is this important? Because his critics, you see, were saying that he might write strongly, but in person he was weak. How do we know that? Well, in this letter, in chapter 10, verse 10, we read this. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Was that nice? No. Disrespectful at the least. Then in verses 2 through 4, here in chapter 2, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be, for, be the joy of you all. 
For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. We need to understand this. Consider how in this text, Paul acknowledges that he knew his decision not to revisit Corinth personally might inflict more pain than the Corinthians needed to be brought to repentance. So if the painful visit and the painful letter were used by God to bring them to see their sin and repent, what he's saying is then they could be glad, which would really make him rejoice, which is what he hopes happens when he gets there finally. Do you see the tremendous cost to Paul in all this? When he obeys God first and first confronts sin, he trembles before God himself and then refrains from piling it on even more by not visiting a second time. Trusting and hoping that God would bring them to repentance so that they all could rejoice together with great joy in God's work in their hearts. Now there's some of you in here who have gone through something exactly like this somewhere. And some of the hardest questions to answer is not just, should I let them know? That's the painful part. And if I do, what attitude should I have when I do? Some of the most painful things to think about is, should I go back again? In this situation, Paul knew he shouldn't for a while. So later in 2 Corinthians, Paul is still referring, in case you haven't picked this up yet, he refers to this all throughout this letter. So we'll be hearing about it over and over again. And I'm thinking that's because Bobby has a hard time remembering things. And I need to be reminded over and over again. So we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. You might want to follow along. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 10. This is incredible. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. Catch that? For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. 
The cost to him is in our verse 4 here in chapter 2. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Well, let me ask you a question. Did they know when he did that painful visit and that letter that he loved them? Did they say, thanks, Paul, for revealing our sin again? No, they did not. At least not outwardly. God may have been working already to give them that feeling deep down in their gut that, boy, does this hit home. So this is what we need to consider today. Everyone who truly loves and ministers to others the grace of Christ many times knows and feels this kind of grief. And many people leave relationships or ministries because of going through this kind of grief. And at some point, that may be all a person can do. But this is an apostle with a calling from Christ himself who knows what his mission is. That's not up for debate. Also many times that tremendous grief is turned to a joy that is truly indescribable. I almost would like to know how many of you have gone through something like that and seen somebody turn around. And then what? They're not exalting you for the turnaround. If they truly understand this, and their grief has turned to godly grief, what do they do? They praise and give the glory to God for using this humble, brave person to put their own relationship with you on the line in order to appeal to you to consider what God says in his word. And you can't even describe how great that feels. Even if it just happens once. Yes, it is worth it. Because then God's grace to everybody is on display. And our Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. Now folks, this is This message today, this passage is so foundational, no matter where you are in your Christian life. This is what it's all about, to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we need to not only think about this passage and this issue in Corinth and maybe a couple of others that you've been in, we need to think about the time we are living it. God's purpose in our lives right now is to conform us to the image of Christ. Are we thinking about it like that? A word of encouragement. If you ask him to help you think about all of this through that lens, 
you will grow spiritually. You will have more peace. You will have more strength to endure whatever it is that God calls us all to endure together to some degree, no matter what the situations are. And on that basis, when we see one another, we have a hope in our eyes that understands that you may be going through a whole lot more than I am right now. But we are in this to see God conform us to the image of his son. And on that regard, can we encourage each other in any kind of circumstance? Yes, we can. And that's what we're called to do. And I'm believing that's why you're here this morning. Now, we can make some funny jokes about this when we can't see each other. Is that the image of Christ? There is some humor in little bitty pieces here. But let's get the big picture, which will help all of us. It will help our hearts adjust. It will help our anxiousness. It will help our question marks about what is the plan. And the answer is we don't really know all the details about very much at this point. But we do know what his purpose is for us. And that matters more than anything, no matter what else happens. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you humbled and dependent and hopefully open and hungry for your word more than ever in our whole lives as we see the things that are deeply distressing in so many areas. We are somewhat confused. We admit that we don't have all the facts, and yet we still demand them. We pray that you'd give us the energy to do that kind of work to find out, but to not base our whole day-to-day walks on how much of that we actually know, but that we could measure each step by, is this step trusting you? And as we interact with one another, oh Lord, we pray that we could hear not just the words that our brothers and sisters in Christ say, but also the heart and maybe the anguish and pain inside of that heart, trying and desiring to know you and to hunger for you and to love you and not knowing where the next step is. And Lord, we know that as we do this, that we will come to love you more and have a great increase in empathy and even encouragement in knowing that God will turn this into conforming our image more and more to Christ. And lest we forget, Lord, keep on our minds the fact that you sent your Son, holy and perfect, into this world, and the world hated him so much, you killed him. Which was a picture of our own rebellious sin that he covered with his own blood. So, Lord, we pray that our depth of trust would grow. And we pray that our joy in you will increase 
thank you for being able to worship you at all today. Thank you for praising you in song and lifting up our hearts in prayer. And thank you for your word, which we have and which you are applying to us in greater and greater degrees. We love you, God, for sending your son to rescue us. Keep our heads straight and our hearts on line with you, growing into the image of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed. I think you know what to do.